Well, if you were with us months and months ago as we got started in the Gospel of Mark, you may recall that one of the things we talked about is that the idea that Mark is like an expert filmmaker who is telling a very important and intentional story about Jesus. Sometimes when we read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we think of it sort of like someone was just sort of following around Jesus, kind of capturing all this raw footage, and you just have all these random stories. That's not it at all. In fact, Mark is much more like an expert documentary filmmaker, and he's taken all this raw footage, and he's compiled it in such a way to tell a story that really makes you think. Right? Isn't that the point of a documentary? You watch a documentary, it's not just like watching a security camera, here's what happened. It's intentionally trying to get you to think about something and to provoke you to consider something maybe in a new way. And that's exactly what the gospel writer Mark is doing. Now, um, in order to understand this particular story that we're in today, you've got to kind of get that picture. And, and even more, you've got to really understand this is the part of the movie that you don't want to leave for. Okay, so like if you're a person that likes to go get popcorn or you got a little bladder or whatever, like, like you're at the part of the movie in Mark where like you just need to hold it, okay, because this stuff is really, really important. Mark has spent 11 chapters or so, uh, basically 10 chapters, looking at the last three years of Jesus' life. And now the camera is zooming in, the action is slowing down because chapters 11 through 16 are the last week of Jesus' life. So you want to be here. You want to be here really for the rest of this series as much as you can to zoom in on this. This is the like crucial moment in Mark's film, in Mark's movie that you need to understand. Now, I realize that a number of you haven't been here this whole way. And in order to understand what we're going to look at today, there's some parts of the movie that we need to catch you up in. Normally, I get really annoyed when people come into a movie late and, I'm, and they start asking questions like, shut up, you should have been on time, you know. But, but hey, we're going to bring you on. We're going to bring you along. So here's kind of where this message is going to go today. I want to just highlight a couple things in the movie that have happened so far. Because um, even some of you who were here, you won't remember this. Um, and and some, I'm going to highlight some stuff that's going to help you understand today's story. Then I want to look at today's story. And then I want to ask some questions that help us really dig into what does Mark want us to think about because of this. All right? So that's where we're going to head. So the movie starts, right, the the soundtrack begins, the music comes up, the theater's dark, and Mark 1-1, right, the screen's black, and the, and the text comes up, right? And if you're like me, you've got to kind of squint and go, what, are they, what does that say? Right, that's Mark 1-1. Mark 1-1 comes, and it says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So right from the beginning of the film, you're told who Jesus is. This is the beginning of the gospel. This is good news. That's what that word gospel means. Good news about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So you know right from the beginning as the reader, as the, as the viewer, okay, this is about Jesus, and Jesus is the Son of God. That's going to be an important theme throughout the rest of this film. Now, the opening scene starts, and how many of you know as you watch a movie, the way a movie opens sets the tone for the whole thing, right? In a sense, you can kind of sometimes see a whole movie through the lens of what happens in the opening scene. It's supposed to get your attention. It's supposed to make you think. And so what does Mark open with? Mark opens introducing us to a guy named John the Baptist. Uh, John the Baptist is the first Baptist, 
right? He was just John. No one called him John the Baptist because no one, there wasn't anything as the Baptist back then, but he had kind of invented it sort of. And what he was doing, he was a cousin to Jesus, a prophet from God, and he was going around telling people, listen, you need to turn around from your sin. You need to repent. You need to get ready because after me is coming someone who I'm not even worthy to untie his shoes. John the Baptist is preparing the way. And so Mark opens up with that scene of John the Baptist. You see John, and he's out there in the desert, and throngs and throngs of people, all these people are coming to hear him and to be baptized. Well, one of the people that ends up getting baptized by John is Jesus. Mark tells us about it in uh, chapter 1, verse 10. Jesus gets baptized. He goes down into the water. Verse 10, and when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. Jesus is the son of God. He's baptized. The spirit descends like a dove, and the voice of the Father booms. This is my beloved son. That's the opening scene. That's what Mark wants you to begin to understand. This is who Jesus is, the beloved son of God. Now, as, as people watching the movie, you and I get an insight that most of the people in this story didn't have, right? We, we know right away, okay, this is the son of God. But a lot of people in the story, they're kind of trying to figure Jesus out. Right, on one hand, he's this Galilean peasant. He's kind of like, a, you know, we've called him over the last few weeks, a handyman from Holbrook. He's a carpenter from Nazareth. No one's ever been there. No one ever likes it, right? Like, he's just this totally regular guy. Not a, no accreditation, no ordination, unschooled, untaught, regular schmo. On the other hand, he's doing some amazing things. People are noticing and people are paying attention. And a lot of the things Jesus is doing seem to indicate that there's some kind of authority that he has that nobody else has. Let me give you just quickly a number of examples that we've seen so far in this book. In, in Mark 1, 22, uh, we read about how people experience the teaching of Jesus. It says, and they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. So in his teaching, he's authoritative. A little bit later, he heals a demon-possessed man, casts the demon out, and it says in Mark 1.27, and they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. A little bit later, Jesus encounters a man who's paralyzed, and he tells him, not only do I have the authority to heal you from your paralysis. I have the authority to forgive sins. Here's what he says in Mark 2. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he did. So people are seeing Jesus and hearing him teach and seeing his actions and his miracles. And they're going, there's something to this authority. But as his popularity begins to swell, so does his opposition. And now the Pharisees and the religious leaders and these people who have all this significant religious power are starting to come against Jesus. And they're starting to challenge him about you know, itty-bitty, nitty-gritty rules and all sorts of stuff. And one of the things relates to the Sabbath. And Jesus says something about that relates to his authority in, in Mark 2. There's a whole discussion about the Sabbath. And he says, 
The Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. The Sabbath was that one day out of seven that the people were to rest. This was one of the Ten Commandments given from God. And Jesus says, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. It's a statement of significant authority. A little bit later, Jesus and his disciples are out on the lake. And these are experienced fishermen, but there's such an amazing storm that is swelling and rising so significantly that these experienced fishermen spent their whole life on the lake, are scared to death. And they wake Jesus up, and Jesus says to the wind and to the sea, peace, be still. And the wind goes away, and the water goes flat. Authority. And they see it. And in Mark 4.41, the disciples were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Jesus then gives this authority out in chapter 6. He sends his disciples out two by two. He called them, began to send them out two by two, and gave them authority over unclean spirits. So you listen to him teach, you go, wow, there's some authority. You watch him heal, you go, wow, there's some authority. You hear his specific claims, you go, there's some authority, right? Not only this, he's feeding thousands of people with just a few loaves and fish. He's casting out demons. He's healing the blind. He's raising the dead. And most significantly, as it relates to our story, he's confronting the religious establishment that is cold and lifeless, filled with rules, but not all that interested in actually honoring God. And he's confronting them. Now, all of that, right, that's what's been happening in this movie. That's what's been going on. And all the people are going, who is this guy? Is he the handyman from Holbrook or is he the son of God? But as the viewer, you get to know, right? You understand because Mark already told you he's the son of God. And you heard the father's voice at the baptism. This is my beloved son. And Mark actually in chapter 9 gives you another indication. He pulls the veil back a little more when Jesus goes up on a mountain with a few of his closest disciples. And he is, the the word is the transfiguration. He's transfigured. They're allowed to see his divine glory that had previously been veiled by his human flesh. And they hear the voice of God saying, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. So we know who he is, but everyone in the story is kind of trying to figure it out. Which all leads us to this climactic moment of this film as Jesus approaches Jerusalem. Right, as Jesus approaches this last week of his life. Now, we're going to talk about what he's done so far, but before we do, I just want to kind of nerd out with you a little bit and help you just kind of understand visually kind of what, what scene, what setting is Jesus walking into here in this last week of his life. I think it's helpful to see some pictures, especially when you think about a film. And so let me just show you a couple things. Uh, we're told in Mark 11 that Jesus and his disciples are staying in Bethany. Bethany is a nearby village. It's about three miles from Jerusalem. If you look at this map that we have, uh, Bethany is there, number 21. Jerusalem is number 18. It's the black dots there. This is about three or four miles, right? So in, in the time it would take you to walk from your house to the grocery store, probably, Jesus would walk from Bethany to Jerusalem. Probably, a lot of people think that Jesus was staying at the home of Lazarus. Lazarus was a man who lived in Bethany, a good friend of his. Lazarus was the one Jesus raised from the dead. And I kind of think it went something like, hey, Lazarus, I need a place to stay. And Lazarus was like, I don't know if I have room. And, and he was like, well, I did raise you from the dead. And Lazarus was like, oh, 
yeah, you're right, I owe you one, okay? So, so they're staying there, and what they're doing is they're just commuting every day into Jerusalem, right? The, Jerusalem is normally 50,000 people. It's swelled to five, six times that. There's tons of people in town for this last week of the Passover. Now, let me show you a picture of what Jerusalem looked like in this particular day and age. Here's an artist's d- depiction of ancient Jerusalem. Um, you'll see that this is from 63 AD, about 30 years after the events that we're talking about here. And basically what's been added in the last 30 years is that part up on the top left that looks kind of like Queen Creek. Um, right, that's the new construction, right? That's why it looks like, like where a lot of us live, right? So that's all kind of new. It's really where, it's, where the dense buildings are. That would have been Jerusalem during Jesus' day. So here's, here's some actual like labels for this map that'll help you a bit. Across from the temple, there's a valley there that runs along that eastern edge. Across from that is the Mount of Olives, significant mountain. Um, you see the temple, what a significant, big, colossal place that would have been. Down below on the right, you see the city of David. That, that little part where there's that wall, that would have been Old Testament Jerusalem. When you read the Bible, right, it's about the size of a football field. It's not super huge. Um, and then you have Golgotha, which... As you can tell in this picture, it's inside the walls, but if you rewind 30 years, it's outside the walls. Jesus is crucified outside the city. That's Golgotha, the place of the skull, which is why if you go today to Jerusalem, you'll go to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre where they say, this is where Jesus died, but you're like, this isn't outside the city. This is surrounded. Well, the whole city has has grown around it, okay? So that's Jerusalem. Now, the temple, you see just the scale of it here as it relates to this deal. This was a huge temple. Herod had built this, invested significant money, and this is Herod's temple compared to Solomon's temple. Solomon's temple was the one that people traveled from all over the world to see. And you see, it just absolutely dwarfs it. Not only is the temple huge, but the temple mount, the whole area that this is on, is humongous. This whole temple mount area is is significantly larger than a football field. It's absolutely huge. This whole area is the the temple. This is where this action is taking place. So you just think about the drama of this. The handyman from Holbrook is going to the center of power and religion, and he's saying and doing some amazing things. I took a picture of what this looks like uh, now. This was a number of years ago when I was in Israel. There's a mosque now that's been built on top of that temple mount. Um, But you can see that big wall that goes around it. This is a picture I'm taking actually from the Mount of Olives looking across that valley at what is now the temple. The next picture is kind of the opposite. It's looking up at the, the Mount of Olives. But you see, this is a real place. This isn't fictional this is real place, real things. And I, I show you all that so that you can appreciate the drama of what is happening here. So Jesus is in Bethany. He's commuting in each day. The first day, he commutes in, and uh, there's a big attention with it, right? It's the triumphal entry. We looked at it at the beginning of chapter 11. That's Sunday. Sunday, he rides in. All these people are shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is you who comes in the name of the Lord. And then he goes to the temple. It doesn't say much what he does, but he looks around, and you have to think he just looks at the, the emptiness of the temple and starts thinking, what am I going to do tomorrow? Um, and so he goes in the next day and 
kind of throws his weight around. So Monday he comes, he curses the fig tree on the way, and then he goes into the temple and he clears it out. He says, this is supposed to be a house of prayer for all the nations. You've made it a den of robbers. And he won't let anybody carry anything, and he won't let anybody sell anything, right? Think about that big, giant area, and he's going, we're shutting it down. That's a big deal. What's going to happen next? And why is Jesus doing this? I, I don't have time to get into it all the way, but I think Psalm 118 is a key psalm for understanding what's going on in Jesus' mind. In fact, I'll give you some homework. If you want some homework this week, read Psalm 118. And then read it and look for how many connections you can see between Psalm 118 and Mark 11 and 12. It's staggering. I think Jesus maybe in his mind has been praying about and thinking about Psalm 118. Psalm 118 is where the the people who say, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That comes right from Psalm 118. It's also at the end of this passage where Jesus talks about the stone the builders reject has become the cornerstone. That's from Psalm 118. And you know what was going on when Psalm 118 was written? Psalm 118 was written for the dedication of the new temple during Ezra's day. A new thing is happening. And Jesus comes doing a new thing, clearing it out of dead religion, bringing new life, building a new people. And he wrecks havoc on the whole place. So that's Monday. What's going to happen the next day? Think about this. And everywhere Jesus has gone, opposition, people going, who do you think you are? What is this really? What is going to happen the day after he just shut the whole thing down? You think he's going to just get to walk in and do it again? No. They're going to send the big boys, the big dogs. They're going to confront him, right, and go, what are you doing? You're a, you're a peasant. You're unaccredited. You're unordained. What, what do you think you're doing? You have no authority. And that's exactly what happens. And so that takes us uh, Tuesday where this beginning of this long section goes from here to the end of chapter 13 where Jesus is confronting the religious leaders really starts with them confronting him. Verse 27, they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. Now, this is probably a delegation from a group of people known as the Sanhedrin. They were the religious leaders, 71 people, uh, Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes, elders, all these different people, priests, The big dogs, right? Jesus has been talking to all these local Pharisees and local religious leaders. Now he's in Jerusalem at the temple. The big dogs are here now. And you got to think, they're going, we're going to squash this guy. We're going to confront this little Galilean peasant, and he's going to melt. Let's see. The chief priests, the scribes, the elders came to him, and they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them. Who do you think you are? You can't just come into the temple and start ordering people around and changing our whole system. What do you think you're doing? Who who, who allows you to do that? Well, Jesus doesn't melt. Jesus answers back. This answer shows the kind of authority he has. Jesus said to them, verse 29, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. So Jesus says, listen, you want to know what authority I'm going to do this? Okay, I'm going to ask you a question, and depending on your answer, I'll tell you. 
Was, was John's baptism from God or from man? Was John really a prophet sent by God because he was unaccredited, he was unordained, or was it just a random, you know, man thing? No godly power in it. Which is it? Now listen, I've read this story a bunch of times, and I'd always read it as if Jesus was like trying to distract them. Like, squirrel! Right? Like, like he didn't want to answer. Right? Like he's nervous that if I answer, oh, they'll, they'll kill me. And I'll, right? but, but no, no, no. Jesus isn't afraid at all. Right? If you're afraid, you don't show up to the temple and start clearing house. He's not afraid even a little bit. So what's going on in Jesus' response? What's going on is Jesus is saying, listen, you'll never understand my authority if you don't also understand John the Baptist's authority. So before I answer your question, let me ask you a question. How do you understand John the Baptist's authority? Was it from God? Was he a real prophet from God? Or was he just a man doing crazy stuff? Why would that be significant? Because in John the Baptist baptizing Jesus, right, the the ministry of John the Baptist is significant as it relates to Jesus because Jesus is baptized, and that's when the Spirit descends, and that's when God the Father says, this is my beloved Son. So if John is from God, then so is Jesus. And if John's a quack, then so is Jesus. And so Jesus shrewdly says, how do you answer that question? We also have to know that this is a little bit of a trap for them because they don't share his fearlessness. They're totally afraid. They're afraid of losing power. So they begin to discuss, what do do we do here? Verse 31, they discussed it with one another, saying, if we say from heaven, he'll say, why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, well, they were afraid of the people, right? So you get what's going on? They're having a debate. They go, if we say that John the Baptist was from God, Jesus is going to go, well, then why did you ignore him and reject him and not believe him? If that was really from God, then you, the religious leaders of Israel, you blew it. God isn't even in your thing, right? So to admit that is to lose significant power because what they have to do then is say, okay, Jesus, you're actually from God. We're not. You be in charge. They don't want to do that. But what if they say, oh, he was just from man, he was just a, just a crazy lunatic, you know, the locusts and the honey and the camels, right? He was just a guy. Well, they got a big problem because they're also kind of politicians here, right? This is where they're not leading out of conviction, out of truth, out of what do we do that's right. They're leading out of what's expedient, what's popular, right? And they're going, well, in the polls, John the Baptist is really soaring high. And if we say he's from man and the people think he's from God, we're, we're going to lose power. So what's going on either way is they're afraid to lose control. They're afraid to lose power. So they get political. What do they say? So they answer Jesus, we do not know. We don't know. And Jesus says, then I'm not telling you where my authority came from. Because if you can't see that John the Baptist was from God, you'll never see that I am. And then right away, he goes and he tells this story. So Mark 12 begins this new parable. Mark says he began to speak to them in parables. Now, this is fascinating because Mark hasn't recorded parables since back in like chapter four. And everyone in chapter four, Jesus would tell this parable and people were like, uh, Jesus, I didn't really get that. Could you like go through that again and explain it? Because I don't... I don't feel like I got it, right? That's what happens every time. No one gets it. 
But at the end of this one, these, these religious leaders, it says in verse 12, perceive that he had told this parable against them. So this thing, this parable is barely a parable. It's not very veiled. It's not very clouded. It's not very like, oh, I wonder what did he mean? It's very, very clear. And it's scathing. So Jesus tells a story. He says, listen, there was an owner who owned this piece of land, and he decided to build a, a, a vineyard. And he invested significantly in it. He built a wall, and he built a tower, and he dug a wine press, used a lot of his resources to make this a really good, strong vineyard. And he got some tenants in there to take care of it. Well, once harvest time came, right, he'd invested a lot. He owned this property. It was time to see some fruit. It was time for him to be able to have some of that harvest. And so he sent some servants. And the first servant came and said, hey, I'm coming to collect a portion of the the fruit that my owner uh, deserves. And the tenants, Jesus says, they beat him. And they sent him away empty-handed. The owner goes, hmm. I'll send another one. So he sends another servant. And this servant doesn't just get beaten. This servant gets beaten over the head and shamed publicly, which you couldn't do a lot worse thing in the first century to somebody than to shame them. So it gets worse, empty-handed. Owner sends another servant. Servant gets there, says, I want some of my owner's fruit. They don't just beat him. They don't just shame him. This time, they kill him. And Jesus says, and this owner just kept sending servants, servant after servant after servant after servant. Some of them got beaten, some of them got shamed, some of them got killed, but this happened time and time and time again until finally the owner said, you know what, there's one more person that I can send. I'm going to send my beloved son. That's the word Jesus uses. I'm going to send my beloved son. Surely they'll listen to him because the son isn't just the servant. The son actually has the authority. He is the identity of the owner. He has the inheritance of the owner. So surely they'll honor him, right? And the son comes and the tenants think to themselves, This is the chance we've been waiting for. We'll kill him, and then we'll take over this. We'll be in charge. We'll have this property the way we want it. That's the story Jesus tells. Hmm, what could Jesus be talking about? It's not hard to figure out. They got it crystal clear. What Jesus is saying, he's saying, listen, there's a God who has created this world and he's given it to a people and he's put some leadership in charge of it, these tenants, to nurture this vineyard, to nurture this nation, to nurture these people. And instead of doing that, they're selfish. And so God keeps sending prophet after prophet after prophet to speak and to write and to urge the people to turn back to God, and they just keep discarding them. And so finally, God has sent his beloved son, his only son. Now, there's a part of me, just as I read this story, that's like, God, are you crazy? The last thing you should do is to send your son. 
If this is how they treated your servants, why would they treat your son better? And yet, doesn't that show us the heart of God? Doesn't that show us how deeply God is going to keep pursuing and keep pursuing and keep pursuing a hard and a wicked and a rebellious people? And the tenants, the leaders in Israel, will kill Jesus. Jesus says in verse 9, what will the owner of the vineyard do? That word owner could be translated Lord. What will the Lord of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? Here he quotes Psalm 118. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. We'll talk more about the cornerstone and what that means, but, but essentially it has the idea that there's a stone that the people in charge of the construction project said, we don't want that. Let's get rid of that. We don't need that. But in the end, that stone became the cornerstone, the capstone, the foundation of a brand new thing that God is doing. That's what Jesus says is happening. God is even behind the giving of his son. Well, the people, or the the leaders, they get this, right? It says, verse 12, they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. Think about this. Jesus just said, listen, guys, you're the tenants. I'm the son. You're going to kill me. And they go, let's arrest him. They're not even, like, They're so blind that they don't see that they're actually in arresting him and seeking his death, fulfilling the very thing he said. The only thing that keeps them from arresting him is what? They're afraid of what people will think. So they're going to do it at night, and they're going to do it secretly, and they're going to do it another way. But make no mistake, Jesus signs his death warrant here. He's going to keep battling these guys over the next few days, but he signs it here. He is a dead man starting here. What do we get from this? What do we learn from this? Right, if a, if a documentary is seeking to get us to think about some stuff, what are we supposed to think about from this portion of the film? Right, there's a lot of movie left. But from this scene, what does Mark want us to reflect on? Well, I've got five questions that I think we need to reflect on as a result of this passage. And here's the first one. What drives you? Is it fearing God or fearing people? What drives you? Right here you see this contrast crystal clear. The religious leaders, it says in 1132, were afraid of the people that held that John really was a prophet. 1212, they feared the people, right? They don't act out of conviction. They don't act out of uh, courage. They don't act out of what does God think we should do? We're the priests. We're the scribes. We're the elders. We're the representatives of God to the people and the people to God. We need to hear God's voice and do it. They don't think that. They think What's everyone think? What about you? What drives you? How people perceive you? How they look at you? How you look to them? Are you constantly sort of your own PR firm managing your perception? 
posting all the right things to make yourself look good, avoiding all the difficult conversations that people might, you know, get a chance to not like you. You're constantly managing your reputation and living in light of what's going on now? How do I look? Or are you like Jesus going, I'm here to honor God, period. Listen, Psalm 118, this is the passage, Psalm 118, that I think Jesus has been meditating on. Here's what it says in verse 6. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? I think that's Jesus. Now, only an idiot is not aware of how they're being perceived, right? Anyone with basic social skills can determine how am I being perceived. Sorry, idiot was sort of strong. I shouldn't have said that. Right? Anyone can figure that out. And, and people who don't care at all what anyone thinks are, tend to be sociopaths. But what drives you? Are you aware of what people think of you, but actually at your core committed to doing what God wants? Or are you driven by what people think? These guys are driven by what people think, not by what God thinks. And it leads them in a disastrous direction. Here's the second question. How long can you do church without God? And you could say life without God. How long could you do life without God? But I focus in on church here because if you can't, if you don't need God at church, I don't trust you're going to need him elsewhere. How long can you do church without God? Right, you, congratulations, right? You made it here today, right? I, I, this summer while we were on vacation, I just went to church with my family for the first time in a long time, right? Normally I get here way early and my wife gets here another time and I don't, like going to church with a family, congratulations to those of you who do it. It is a, it is a boatload of work. I mean, it's, it's right? And, and you come to church and hopefully you meet somebody or you know somebody or there's someone you're looking forward to see. Maybe you're encouraged by, or at least somewhat, you know, informed or something by whatever gets said. Hopefully you enjoy the music. But, but do you think to yourself ever as you go to church, I can't wait to go to church because I want to meet with God. Oh, I hope, I hope at church I get to experience God today. How long could you do church? How long could you do your life without God? Because you know what? You're pretty smart and you're pretty competent and you know, this all just feels good and if God shows up, fine, but I could do without him. That's a scary place to be. Jeff Surratt is a guy who's a pastor, uh, been a pastor for 20, 30 years and he wrote an article that I absolutely love where he talks about how you can get so proficient and so religious and so just used to your routine and used to your deal that you can do all of it without God. Here's what he says. He says, Israel created an elaborate and efficient church that ran very well without God. The priests and Levites excelled at their roles. The sacrificial system was geared to handle the crowds at Passover efficiently. And the Jewish people knew their needs were met with consistency and care. 400 years after God stepped away, the Jews no longer missed him. They had created a church without God. And then one weekend, he showed up. He ignored their service order, he tore up their resource table, and he violated their policies and procedures. Every time he came to a service, havoc ensued. Finally, they had either 
to completely change the way they did church or kill God. They chose to kill God. How long could you just go through the motions, play church, play religion, play Christianity, right? All the time, worried about how do I look? How does my wife perceive me? How's my husband perceive me? How do my kids? Oh, I want to be a good example to my kids. I want to do all this. I want to be impressive. Oh, my parents are glad I'm going to church now, right? And you're managing what people think, and it never occurs to you. I want God. If God's not here, it's a waste. How long could you do it without God? They went 400 years. Raises a third question. What will you do with Jesus? Will you rejoice or will you reject Jesus? What are you going to do with him? Right? All throughout the Gospels and the New Testament, it becomes very clear that you are either with Jesus or against him. Are you going to rejoice in Jesus or reject him? Are you going to trust Jesus or disbelieve in him? Right? And, and the image of the cornerstone here, this is a perfect image to help you see like there's not a middle ground. And I understand there's a journey, there's a process to kind of understand things and to get questions answered. But, but the point is coming where you will either be with Jesus or not. Right? The cornerstone is, is appropriate here, right? A cornerstone is so big, it's so massive, that it only has two uses. One is to be the cornerstone, or the other is to be thrown away, right? It's so big that you can't just put it in as part of the construction project. It's either got to be the main thing, the foundation upon which everything else is built, or it's worthless. Which is Jesus for you? Is he the foundation? Is he the rock? Is he the cornerstone of your life? So much so that it shapes how you see every day, oh God, I need you. And it shapes that you, you don't live according to the perception and the values of other people. You live according to what does God want? Or have you gone, no, nah, I don't need him. I, I, it's one or the other. Will you receive him and rejoice, or will you reject him? Now, the next two questions are basically determined by your answer to that. So for those of you who would go, I reject him. Or maybe you go, I don't know yet. I got a lot of questions. I got a lot of objections. You know, I'm kind of a rational, you know, common sense, objective thinker, and I got a lot of questions. I got a lot of concerns, and I got to get those answered because I got some resistance. But I... Okay, here's the fourth question for those of you in that camp. Why are you really resistant to Jesus? Like really, at the core, what's going on? Why? Listen, I talk to a number of people who go, I, I just, I got some real concerns about this, right? Like, I don't know if I can put my life in the hands of a book written by shepherds 2,000 years ago. And uh, the idea of someone rising from the dead and doing miracles, I mean, I just, I, I can't believe that. And none of this is scientifically proven, and like, there's some real hurdles here. Like, I'm just objective. I'm just thinking, you know, and I just, I don't see it how it adds up. Listen, I don't doubt for a second that many of you have real questions, real objections, real concerns with all of that kind of stuff, and much more than I mentioned. But if you stay there, and you sort of solidify yourself as a person who's just objective and just rational and you don't, you don't need this stuff because you've sorted it through. My question would be, why are you really rejecting Jesus? 
Because you might think you're objective, but I would suggest to you, you are anything but objective. Because to admit that Jesus is the Son of God means you owe your whole life to him. Your whole life now has to be built on him as the cornerstone, which means he rearranges all the furniture. He changes everything. You no longer get to live for yourself. You no longer get to live for the things that give you comfort and you power, right? And religious people can do this like these guys, going, well, there's these objections we have. Or irreligious people can do it. But I would submit to you that what's behind rejection of Jesus is not rational objective questions as much as it is knowing if I admit that Jesus is the Son of God, I lose control. Isn't that what's going on with these guys? If we admit that John the Baptist was from God, we lose power. If we admit that he was from man, we lose power. We can't lose power. We can't lose control. And so we hide behind these objective, rational, thoughtful objections. There's answers to those things. We can get those answered. But I find that many people are just putting that up as a smokescreen because they don't want to face the truth that they would lose power. James Edwards is a great commentator. I've loved his commentary on Mark. Here's how he said it. He said, if humanity can dispense with God or even kill God, then humanity can become God. Isn't that what's really behind resistance to Jesus? You want to be in charge. You want to run the show. Let me just tell you this. You've never been in charge. You think you are. You didn't make yourself be born into this world. You didn't pick the family that you were born into. You have no idea when you'll die. You could get a phone call. You could get a biopsy result. You could get all kinds of things this week that could totally change the direction of your life, and you have no power to change it. You're not in control. That's an illusion. That's a lie. The reality is you are in the hands of a loving landowner who is cultivating this world because he wants to know you, and he has sent his son to die in your place because he wants relationship with you. He wants to know you. That's what he wants. A God who is powerful, a God who is good, a God who is pursuing you. That's the truth. Don't resist him. Yeah, you'll lose control. Yeah, you'll lose power. Yeah, you won't get to be on the throne of your life, but you'll be under someone who has given their life for you. It's a thrill to serve someone like that. Why are you really rejecting? And then here's the last question, and this is for those of you who are rejoicing in Jesus, the last question is this. Isn't God's plan marvelous? It's marvelous. Right? That's what Jesus says here. Jesus says, listen, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. Jesus is not a victim here. This is not an accident here. This is God's perfect, loving, marvelous plan to win his people back. That's what this is. Isn't it marvelous? Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for your marvelous, marvelous plan. I thank you for the wisdom and strength and courage of Jesus.
God, thank you that that now counts for us. That though we lose control and we lose power, we can joyfully do it because we're giving it up to the truly powerful one who has given himself in love for us. God, move our hearts through this, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.